We've been studying, if you've been with us since May the 16th, since May the 16th, we've been studying the book of James. James being the guy who was the half-brother of Jesus, grew up in his house, did not believe in him until after he died and rose again, then said, oh, what do you know? He really is the Messiah. And James became a Jesus follower. He ended up serving Jesus and spreading the message of hope all the way until he became ultimately the de facto leader, pretty much, as far as just the main leader voice in the church of Jerusalem, serving in Jerusalem to the Jewish believers there. James would later write a letter to all the other people who were Jewish believers all over the countries nearby as they began to hear about and believe on Jesus. He wrote letters to them and kind of told them by letter what he told his own people probably in Jerusalem all the time. And thankfully, he wrote that letter not only to help them at the time, but 2,000 years later, it's good instruction for us today. We've been studying it since May 16th, and we are getting near the end because today, today we are starting James chapter 5. So this is the last chapter of James's letter. Again, we added the chapters and the verses after he wrote the letter so we could find the references within it easier. But what we call James 5 is the last chapter. We're starting it today. And we are going to study the first 11 verses of James 5 today. That's a lot of verses. I'm going to tell you a little secret since nothing, you're getting all the peaks behind the curtain today. Anyhow, you might as well get some more. This is actually originally scheduled to be two sermons. We're going to study two, basically what would have been two weeks of messages. We're putting them together in the first 11 verses and doing them in one Sunday today. That's information you did not need to have, but you also didn't need to see all the other stuff that is off kilter today, right? So, no, but seriously, um, we're doing it together. But even though these are two different topics, the reason we're putting them together is because there's one overarching truth that covers both of them. And we thought it'd be good to bring them together. So by doing so, we're going to meet for two hours today and not come next week. No, I'm just kidding. That's not what's happening at all. That's not what's happening. Okay. Um, But anyhow, James 5. And James is going to begin this chapter by talking to the to rich people. He's going to actually address the rich people who are reading his letter. Now, I want to pause and say this. James has not yet in this letter talked to, to, to anybody by socioeconomic class. If you were with us in this series earlier, you might remember that James talked in chapter 3 or 2, I think, about how we should not show favoritism to people based upon their wealth or their lack of wealth. That sometimes people show favoritism to the rich because the rich can do something for them and they kind of neglect the poor. And that's why things get corrupted. And that's why people—and Jesus followers should not be that way. So James talked to us about how we treat the rich and the poor. But now he's going to actually address rich people. Now, there was a lot of rich people around. Most of the cities where these churches were being started across the area were built in Mediterranean areas by the sea, or by rivers, because you most, even today, most places are built where there's, you know, water sources. And so there's a lot of merchants and commerce people who've gotten very wealthy. There's a lot of landowners who perhaps own property on the outskirts of the cities, and they were a very agrarian culture, and so they were wealthy. And so James is writing to the people who are poor and some who are rich, and now he's going to address the rich people for a minute in the beginning of James chapter 5. Let's begin together with verse 1. He says, look here, you rich people, weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. That sounds real encouraging, like what in the world? 
And, and James is beginning this chapter, this section, by kind of saying, woe to the rich people. Now, I want to pause again. I pause a lot and say, that's a new phrase. I keep catching, you, you know, when you're a communicator, you find yourself saying phrases over and over again that, you, that are your tics. Like for a while there, I was always saying, don't miss this. I might still do that. I don't know. But now apparently I say, let me pause a lot. So if you hear me say it from now on, there's a contest. You've got to take a shot of Coke Zero every time I say, let me pause here for a moment, okay? And so that's great. Anyhow, um, so let me pause here for a moment. Um, James is not saying rich people are bad and poor people are good. Nor is he saying that rich people are good and poor people are bad. That's not the point here. I want to say that at the beginning because we're going to unpack some stuff. But, but it'd be easy to think that, that this is a big old boo, bad rich people or boo, bad whatever. The truth is, is that that kind of thinking leads to bad doctrine in, in any culture of society or any religion in the world, apart from Christianity even. But sadly, including Christianity, there's some bad thinking. For example, there are religions in the world today and sadly, there's a sect of Christians today that have a prosperity mentality of religion that somehow believes that if you're a person of faith, if you're a person who deserves it or you believe or say the right things, that you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise and all the stuff will go your way. You'll speak the right words and you're, you're going to prosper with money and all the good stuff and everything's going to go your way. Speak the word, believe it, claim it, name it, all that kind of stuff. This prosperity mentality in religion that is also got a part of Christianity. It's not Christian, but people who practice Christianity, sometimes some of them believe that. Like somehow you're favored if you're wealthy or if you do the right things, you'll get rich. Therefore, by default, those who aren't, those who aren't rich, those who are poor, must have done something wrong or they don't have enough faith. And that's just not biblical. That's just not a biblical worldview. Don't, don't, that's not what Jesus taught at all. Jesus left riches to become poor, to serve us. In fact, to read the Bible stories, a lot of people suffered greatly in, in Christianity. For They were great people. John the Baptist got his head cut off in prison. I mean, he wasn't exactly living in a mansion in Malibu. So don't think that, that you know, it's, a, it's a biblical doctrine that if you have enough faith or you're good enough, God will bless you with riches. That's just not a narrative that Jesus taught. It's a bad doctrine. There's also the doctrine the other way that all the rich people are bad. We should eat the rich, you know. And that pours a, pours a virtue because the bad people, and that's not true either. You can be a good poor or a bad poor. You can be a good rich person or a bad rich person. But it's interesting. It's, this is what's interesting. Interestingly, in Scripture, oftentimes the war, there's great warnings against the rich because there are dangers that come with becoming rich. In fact, Jesus one time told a rich young ruler who came to see him that if he wanted to be perfect, he should sell everything that he owned, give everything away to the poor, and come follow him. Jesus told his disciples shortly thereafter, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter God's kingdom. Not because rich is bad, but because rich brings different temptations and struggles. For example, richness brings us a sense that we don't need God. Who needs faith? I got what I need. I can trust in my wealth. So faith falls by the wayside. And we see, this in a, we see this in developed nations. The richer a nation is, the more Christianity fades because people become agnostic because we assume the more we have, the more we just don't need God. God becomes a burden, some like concept we can just wish away. Prosperity brings a lack of faith. And so rich people sometimes dismiss God. They don't believe they need him. Also, there's the idea that we get rich sometimes by doing unethical things to become rich, Right? Like, for example, um, Paul said to Timothy in the book of Timothy that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. 
that people covet after money and they'll do all sorts of bad things to cheat, steal, embezzle, get ahead, do wrong, and, and sell their soul to get rich. But what does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose your own soul? And sometimes people will do wrong things out of a love and lust for money. And then when they get it, they usually continue to do bad because they've already sullied themselves for, to, to be rich. So you can either get, you know, have a, a greed mentality that, that you get rich the wrong way or you lose faith or become corrupt with your money, buy yourself out of trouble, become unethical, you know. So there's a lot of warnings in the Bible about riches being dangerous. In fact, here's one example, we won't get into this, but did you know that Jesus' most harsh parable and story that Jesus told, I mean, just like very pointed, was centered around this topic? It's the one where Jesus talks about hell, actually. Whatever, that's a whole conversation in itself. What's interesting is that it's built around the story of a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus who lived near him, but he ignored his knees because he said, who cares about him? I'm cared for. And Jesus is very, very clear that the haves are not better than the have-nots. If anything, they're more accountable to do something right other than live for themselves. So James is going to address a topic that you see throughout Scripture. Not that rich people are bad, but that often rich people have become in a bad place that's very anti-Christ in its mentality. And James says, look, rich people, weep and groan with anguish because of all the troubles, the terrible troubles ahead of you. To which maybe someone would hear James say that and say, what terrible troubles? They're rich. They can buy themselves out of any problems that are coming their way. But James says, no, listen, verse 2, he says this, your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Again, they might say, James, are you crazy? My wealth is not rotting away. I just got on my iPhone, checked my accounts. I'm doing pretty good right now. And my clothes are looking pretty good. And if they go, do get bad, I can buy some more with all that money. What do you mean my wealth is rotting away? My clothes are moth-eaten rags. And James explains further, verse 3. He says, your gold and silver, they're corroded. The very, this very wealth you are counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. And there it is. He mentions the treasure you've hoarded. There's part of the problem right there, the hoarding. The hoarding. We don't like to call ourselves hoarders. We call ourselves savers and planners perhaps. But, but James says, watch out. And then he says this, he'll testify against you on the day of judgment. And that's what he's been pointing to this whole time. And when we think of the day of judgment, as humans, we think of a future time. Because we are three-dimensional creatures. So as three-dimensional creatures, we think in linear terms. Time is coming, and one day it'll over, and then I'll face judgment. Or I'll answer to God. But God is outside of our time. We can understand the dimension of time and how it's just different than we can understand. We can't understand eternity and existing. It's just beyond our ability to live and comprehend. We can try to, to think through it, but it's beyond us. And God, who is eternal, who stands outside of time, says, yes, in your terms of linear time, there's a day of judgment coming. But basically, he's saying it's already here. God's already in the moment. That, that's why in the last verse, he says, your stuff's already diminished. Because it's already as good as done. And that's hard for us to grasp. But he says there's a day of judgment coming. Why? Why is James being so harsh to these rich people? Like, what did they do to make James say these things? And he explains why in verse 4. Look at it with me. Verse 4. For listen, 
Hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. He says, some of you, you own, you're so rich that you own fields. You, you have property. You own property outside of the cities and you have lodged, and you could buy the fields with your money. And on top of that, you could plant the, with your income and then you could hire workers with the promise of pay and you're just trying to make a good harvest to make a more of a profit and they're just trying to feed their families and you can hire them and then they can work for you. They're grateful for the job because they need the money. You're grateful for the workers. You need the, the field harvested. And then in the end, you cheat them out of their pay so that you can be further ahead, so you can make more of a profit. While meanwhile, they're suffering with nothing to show for it. He says, watch out. Watch out. Because you're taking advantage of others for your own gain. He says, those cries of those you've cheated, he says, those cries of your harvest, of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. In other words, he that created us and made the ear has ears to hear the cries of those who are wrong. And by the way, that should stick with all of us right there, shouldn't it? Like whenever we wrong anybody, whenever we do wrong to anybody, whenever we wrong people, let's remember that the cries of those that we wrong along the way, their cries reach God's ears. That should be a challenge to all of us. Not just to do right because we care about people, but because we, we fear God. We respect God. And he hears the cries. And what James is saying to these people in this passage is a very clear message that I want you to get this today. He is saying, hey, God is coming and he will make it right. That's what James is saying. It's a big statement. God is coming one way or the other. God is coming. Either God is going to come back and this whole experiment that we're living on down here is going to be over one day. He's going to return. Or, like we saw last Sunday, our time is going to be up because we don't know what tomorrow brings or we don't know how long. Our whole life is like a morning fog. So either God's going to back and end this whole experiment or our time will be up before we know it. Or God's going to come and step into our world while we continue on and do something about it. And to intervene in our circumstances. Either way, one way or the other or the other, God is coming and he will make it right in the end. And that's a statement that James is driving home and I want you to remember it, so I'm going to ask you to repeat it with me a few times today. Can we say it together? Ready? God is coming and he will make it right. If you can say it at home with us, even on your couch or wherever, that'd be great. Let's all do it one more time. Ready? God is coming and he will make it right. Now, some of us can sit back and say, perhaps some of James's audience even would say, oh, good. He was tearing up the rich people. I thought he was talking about me, but I don't have fields. I don't have anybody that I'm cheating out of their money. This isn't talking to me. I'm okay. Whew, I'm off the hook. Because isn't that what we do? We always feel like the problem with bad people, greedy people, wrong people, is somebody else. Like, I'm sure that the people who were James is talking to who owned the fields, at first they thought he was talking to other bad people. Rich, greedy people. Then he's like, I'm talking to you. And then we can say, well, I don't own fields, and I don't hire workers, so that's not me. But, but he's talking about a heart issue that, that transcends. It's so hard to see this in ourselves. So James explains in verse 5 the heart behind the problem. Don't miss it. Verse 5. He says, you have spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. He says, here's what you've done. You've decided that your years on this earth, 
Remember, we're not supposed to love the world or the things that are in the world. The world's passing away. We should be setting our affections on things above. But he says, you spent your years on earth in luxury. Or we wouldn't call it that. Most of us say, I don't want to be rich. I just want to be more comfortable. I just want to be a little more comfortable than I currently am. So that's what I'm looking for. We spend our years in luxury and comfort, satisfying our every desire. Just whatever I desire something, I should have it. And, and, and here's the thing. We don't see the, the heart he's talking to. This is us. And I remind us of this often, but we, we as Americans today, we're like, I don't care what our different economic brackets are in this room. We are the top couple percentage of the world's population when it comes to wealth. We do know that, right? Like, we get, everyone hates the one percenters in America. Like, we're all basically pretty much one percenters are close to it in the world's eight billion population. We don't think about that because we just kind of, we live amongst other people who are well off and so we compare ourselves to them and we kind of keep our eyes away from the needs of others. We stay away from the people in the cities or we stay, we keep our eyes away from the world in large. We just, and we always figure if someone's poor, they must have had it coming or it's their fault or they shouldn't have, you know. And, and so it just to appease our sense that we should be ahead further and that's, nothing else is our problem. So we spend our years on earth in luxury and in comfort and satisfy our every desire and just kind of push that stuff away. And that's the problem. Is that we think, well, yeah, but... In fact, we even get mad sometimes when someone tells us that's what we're doing. We're like, I'm not doing that. Back off, man. Just trying to get to my stuff. That's a good indication something's wrong right there. Because we have so much. And we don't want to think about it. We get mad and we get offensive because it's not our fault. Hey, if I'm blessed, it's because I've either earned it or I'm just favored, you know. If you're not, that's not, I mean, if someone else is poor, they, should, they shouldn't have been born peasants, I guess. So, you know, I don't know. That's their fault or something. So we just think of somebody else in a different term. <laughs> but um, James is saying, I'm talking to you. And he says, you fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. Now, when you see that term, fatten yourselves for the day of slaughter, it's a, it's a term that we use for raising animals to eat later on. Right? Like the fatted calf. Why is it fatted? <laughs> we know why the fatted calf is fatted. Because later on, it's going to be dinner. It's like the turkey in, in Thanksgiving time, right? You all know about the story, that, you know, you get the turkey nice and fat. Imagine the turkey with the other turkeys, they're fattening the one up. And he's like, gobble, gobble, hey, friends. Look at all the food they're giving me. Gobble, gobble. I'm special. Ha, ha. Not sharing with you. Too bad. Gobble, gobble. And then come Thanksgiving and it's like, whop. The other guy's like, you go ahead and keep all that food, you know. And so James is using an analogy saying some of us, we're getting ahead of everyone else in life. And we think, gobble, gobble. Look at me. I'm just blessed and favored and earned it and better. Gobble, gobble. And James says, you're fattening yourselves up for a day of slaughter. He's being very pointed. And what he's putting his finger on, what he's putting his finger on is the idea of greed. Now, if you've been around here before, we've given you a definition of greed many times. And when we come by a good definition, we like to repeat it over and over so it sticks with us. Because this is not our definition. We didn't invent it, but we said it's so good. We've brought it to you many times. Same thing we do in the kids program. We have some concepts that we teach and reinforce over and over again through the years so that hopefully they stick inside of their craw. So, This is a definition we've given you before, and I'll give it to you again. What is greed? Greed is the assumption that it's all for my consumption. That's a good definition of greed. Greed is when I assume that everything that comes my way in life, the benefits, opportunities that come my way, I assume that it's there for me to consume. 
It's because I deserve it. I've earned it. Or I'm special. I'm favored. It's just, I'm, I mean, I just, I don't know. I never consider that I have privilege. I never consider that I've been given an opportunity that others don't have. I never consider just things out of my control. I just assume that it's all there for me to consume. And I assume that if you don't have something, that that's your problem. You've either done something wrong or, again, you shouldn't have been born peasants. I don't know. It's not my problem. I just know that I'm blessed. And whatever comes my way is for me. If God brings it my way, it couldn't possibly be for me to be leveraged for others. It's got to be for me. And it's so dangerous. Because when we live this way, as we saw in the first few verses, we will take advantage of people. We will, like the workers in the fields earlier, what do they do? They let somebody else do all the hard work. And then they step back and reap the benefits of of the gains in the field. So easy to sit back and say, I'm going to take advantage of other people to make my life better and say, they're, they're not my problem because I'm greedy. I'm not greedy. Greed is hard to see in ourselves. Greed is hard to see in us. In fact, we probably, sometimes when we're greedy, we would think of someone else as being greedy. But greed's hard to see in ourselves. But when we serve ourselves instead of others. And we take actually advantage of others to get ahead ourselves. That's greed. And I'm going to tell you how you know you're getting, it's hard to see greed. It's hard to see that in the mirror. So let me give you a way of knowing that you might be struggling with greed. Here's a way. If when people talk about greed or generosity, you get angry or defensive or grumbly or dismissive, or uncomfortable, that's a good indication that something's being poked at. That's a good indication something's wrong. That rubs you, makes you mad. You go like, I don't believe I heard that. People are just after Hey, there's something going on there. Listen to that warning sign. Because greed is the assumption that the things that come my way in life are for my benefit, and if someone else gets hurt along the way, yeah, well, oh well, I can't own that. Don't make me feel bad about that. I'm just doing what's best for me. Greed. The assumption that's all for my consumption. Jesus did the opposite. He served. He gave of himself sacrificially for other people. And James says in verse 6, you have condemned and killed innocent people. Not perfect people. No one's perfect. But innocent people. People who are just trying to do their own right thing and then you, 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 you took advantage of them and you have condemned and killed. Maybe not physically killed them, but you've killed their opportunities, killed their dreams, killed their life, killed their opportunities, killed their spirit. You've killed people, and they don't resist you because what can they do anyhow? They have no recourse. So you do what you're going to do, and they're going to live with the consequences. Because you're rich. You have the courts in your favor. You got the money. You could bribe the judges. You got everything else. You got nothing going on. So they suffer as innocent people. And James is reminding us, James is reminding us that God is coming, and he will make it right. Let's say it together again. Ready? God is coming. And he will make it right. Usually my 1045 service is so much more lively than my 9 o'clock service. I'm serious. Like 9 o'clock is like a dead service. No one laughs at anything funny. No one just, they'll sit there like they're half dead at 9 o'clock in the morning. And I look forward to 1045 because you're all awake and vibrant. But you all stink today at saying this after me, okay? So I'm going to ask you people online to be really loud at your house so maybe you can hear you as well. Let's just, we're going to do this a few times this morning. So let's try it again. Ready? God is coming, and he will make it right. That was awesome. Thank you. 
Now, James is going to shift his focus from talking about the rich people. Now he's going to talk to the people, who, or to the greedy people here. He's going to shift his focus and talk to the people who are on the other end of the stick. The people who get the raw end of the deal. Or the people who just got the short stick of life. They're poor or they're just suffering or they're physically ill. They just got the short end of the stick in life. And James says, I've talked to the greedy and the powerful. I'm talking to the people who are just struggling. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're struggling and you're just struggling to make it and get through with your problems that you're facing and the oppression and those who've oppressed you. James is going to speak to that crowd starting with verse 7. Ready? He says, dear brothers and sisters. Let me pause. There I go. Coke Zero. Let me pause. Dear brothers and sisters, that's his way. In three times in the next few verses, James uses the phrase, dear brothers and sisters. Now, when he's talking to the greedy, rich, powerful, he's like, straighten up. Woe unto you. When he's talking to the suffering crowd, he's like, hey, dear brothers and sisters. Notice the tone has changed. Dear brothers and sisters, he says, be patient. Don't you hate when someone tells you to be patient? That's like the worst thing for someone to say in the world. Be patient. Oh, you be patient, you know? What in the world? Like they say, never pray for patience. Like, God, give me patience. And then he's like teaching you, being, ah, I'm sorry I asked, you know? It's like, that's the worst thing. Like, here's how we pray. Lord, give me patience and do it right now, you know? Because I'm waiting, snap, snap. And so, but James is like, guys, dear brothers and sisters, listen, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Again, the Lord's return referring to the idea that he's coming back and it's all gonna be over one day. That could be at any time. Or maybe your time will be up because what is your life? It's a vapor. Or maybe he comes and returns to take care of your problem as your life continues afterwards. But either way, you're waiting for the Lord to, re to do something. Be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. And he says this, consider, consider the farmers. Now this is interesting because these people would understand farming. They were an agricultural agra agrarian society. They understood farming the way that you and I think we do, even though many of us aren't farmers probably. He says, consider the farmers who patiently wait. Now, here's what farmers do. Right? You know this. They, they, go and they, they till their fields, and then they plant all the seed, and then they have to just wait for the rain, especially in that culture where they couldn't uh, water more naturally. You know, wait for the rain. Wait for the harvest. And they have to patiently wait because they can't control that part. It's like, like um, when Brett was in, my son Brett was in uh, Crown Europe Point Junior Bulldogs football. There was a man whose son was on the team all those years with him for several years. And the man said, um, he was a farmer. He had a lot of property, tons of property down south of here. And I remember he said, he say, I think he said reverend or some weird thing like that. I don't know what reverend means, but reverend. Pray for my, pray for rain. <laughs> my crops need rain. Pray for rain, man. We need, and next week, pray, Reverend, pray for rain, man. We need some rain. And then it started raining, and I see him, Reverend, pray it stops raining. Please pray it stops. It needs to stop raining. And then later on, pray for rain, you know. But the waiting game, I remember watching him every week was a new emotional ride. And, uh, but you know what they have to do? They plant their fields, and then they have to patiently wait. They patiently wait for the rains and the, the former rains, the latter rains, the, the fall, the spring rains. He says they eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. They're out there and they don't know when it's going to come, but it's going to come soon. Oh, it's starting to grow. Ooh, it's, too, it's not ripe yet, but it's getting there, right? They're just waiting patiently and eagerly looking. And isn't that a good term? 
They, they, they patiently wait while they eagerly look. They know it's coming. They know it's coming, but they don't know exactly when, but they know it's coming. So they patiently wait while they eagerly look, while they patiently wait, while they eagerly look, while they patiently wait. And James is saying, that's what you're supposed to do. Verse, verse eight, he says, you too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. He says, I want you to take courage. I want you to, I want you to patiently wait while you eagerly look, while you patiently wait and don't lose faith, don't lose hope and don't lose heart. Take courage while you patiently wait and eagerly look. Because like the harvest shows up in time, the coming of the Lord is near. God's going to step in one way or the other. Either it's all said and done finally, or your time is up, or he's going to intervene in your circumstance. Whatever it is, the coming of the Lord is near. Take courage. Don't lose faith. Don't lose hope. Don't lose heart. Eagerly wait. Look. Patiently wait. Take courage. In other words, James is reminding them, God is coming, and he will make it right. Notice the change of tone. Earlier he's like, hey, greedy, rich, bad people. God is coming, he'll make it right. Now he's saying to the sufferer, hey, be patient. Eagerly look, take courage. Guess what? It's rough right now, you're struggling right now, you're barely hanging in there right now, but God is coming. He will make it right. Isn't that helpful? Maybe some of you today, whatever you're facing in life, you need to believe that God is not oblivious to your circumstances, that he's not unaware, that in some way he's gonna come through He's coming, and he'll make it right. That's hope. That's corrective to one crowd, but it's comforting to another. But even as he comforts this crowd who has the short end of the stick, he asks to correct them also. Because sometimes, even though we're the sufferers, we get turned sideways and we become wrong. So he corrects them in the next verse. In verse number nine, he says this, Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. In other words, he says this, look, I know that you got the short end of the stick in life. You got the raw end of the deal. You're suffering, you're doing without, but don't you let it cause you to grumble. Don't let it corrupt you. Because that's what happens. If we're not careful, we'll see the people who take advantage of us and we'll become, they took advantage of me and we'll get, we'll get, we'll get turned. We'll get corrupted. We'll become toxic inside, right? We'll become... If you remember earlier in James and earlier in the letter, he talks about two terms over and over again, selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. And with a rich, powerful crowd, you see selfish ambition. I'm going to get ahead at someone else's expense. But then with a poor crowd, you see the bitter jealousy. And he says, don't let, don't let bitterness become toxic in you and wreck you. Because eventually, if you get that inside of you, you'll begin to use your words and you'll begin to grumble. And you'll begin to try to tear others down to make them pay. You'll begin to try to pull someone down to your station in life because they don't deserve it. You'll begin to grumble and try to hurt people with your words. And then, if you're not careful, eventually your actions will follow. and You'll get your pitchforks and your, your torches and you'll do some bad stuff. It comes from a bad heart that spills out of your mouth and into your life and then your actions. He says, don't let that happen to you. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or, he says, or you'll be judged. I know that we said that the people who are powerful and rich and take advantage of others will be judged. And God's going to be there to help you who are struggling. But if you get turned in this, you become a toxic person, you'll end up getting corrected in the end for that. He says, look, for look, the judge is standing at the door. He says, God is not far away. He's right here. He's watching. Be careful. But then he's going to, in other words, what he's saying to them is, hey, if you're grumbling, if you're letting your heart get toxic because of the wrongs of others, he says, be careful because... 
God is coming. And he'll make it right. You see the theme? Let's say it together. Ready? God is coming and he will make it right. So don't get, don't get grumpy. Don't get bitter. Don't get turned. Don't get toxic. Don't get vengeful. Let God be God. Now he's going to go back to comforting them again. He's going to comfort the sufferer. Here's what he says in verse 10. He says, For examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord. In other words, you need to find some examples of others who have suffered with patience. And haven't we all known people? Sometimes there are people in our own lives, people we know personally, and we've watched them suffer, and they did so in a patient and wholesome way, and we were impressed. James says, look at those people you know who exhibited patience in the midst of suffering. And if it's not someone you know, look at those you know about, you've heard about, you've read about them in history books or in your scriptures in this case. The prophets, people in in your biblical history or your personal history or your nation's history or whatever kind of history. People you've heard of or people that you know who have been examples of being patient in the midst of suffering. If you are suffering, look to those people to give you hope and give you courage. And he's trying to give us an example. In fact, in verse 11, he says this. Verse 11, he says, we give great honor. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. Don't we do that, by the way? We do, don't we? We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. Like, let's be honest. We don't give great honor to those who were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. We might be nice to them because we're afraid of them or because we want something from them. But we don't respect that. We probably envy them. No one who has it easy peasy impresses us. But when we see people suffer and endure under suffering, we honor them. We respect them. And James is saying, look, that some of that is you. Look to those people that you respect and realize that's, that you can do the same. Now, here's the funny part. We can say that, but I've been around long enough to know a lot of people, we're really good. We are really good at thinking, yeah, but you'll understand, Arlen, no one has it as bad as me. There are just, you know, people like that. Whatever's going on in life, they have the worst case of it. If, if you talk about accomplishments, they've accomplished more. You talk about exciting experiences, they, like, uh, with that old SNL skit, Penelope, whatever, they, they've, they've experienced worse. I mean, they've done it all. They're, the, they're, the, they're the, the crowd that if you go through something bad, they've gone through something worse. You tell your story, oh, that ain't nothing. Oh, so sorry for my nothing story, oh, great one. Please tell us how great your life is. Or how horrible it is. I'm sorry for my little problems here, you know? Because they always have it worse. So they feel like, oh, this is, they would hear James say this and say, oh, those who endured under suffering, no one suffered like me. My problems are the worst. Like, that's pretty, if you're that kind of person, I'm kind of poking at you if that's you because stop, okay? I've known some pretty narcissistic people in my life who think it's all about them and other people's problems are not there so they don't feel like a big deal, but their problems are the biggest deal in the world. So don't be that person. But just in case someone's that person, James is going to give the ultimate example of suffering. He says, for instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. Now, if you know the story of Job, like if anyone says, oh, well, I've suffered like Job, you know they got a problem there. No one, like Job has like the worst story. Like he's the ultimate man. Like Job, if you don't know the story of Job, you should read it. It's in the Old Testament. It's one of the oldest books written in the scriptures. Job is the story, ancient story, of a man who was very rich, Maybe he was born rich and kept it, didn't lose it all. Or maybe he became rich through enterprise. I don't know. But Job was wealthy. 
And Job was a good man, God-fearing man, a man of prayer, raised his family. Was like just a, everyone in the region knew him for his wealth and his generosity. He was just a good, good person. And the story of Job, his story, is, it starts off as a narrative about what happens to him. And the book ends with the, the wrap-up narrative. But in the middle of that long book is a kind of a poetic dissertation between multiple people about God's working in the middle of suffering. And what happens in the story is that Job has all this wealth and all this means, and his kids are grown, and then one day, everything falls apart in short time. Like, in a short time, everything falls apart. Like, I mean, his wealth is completely de destroyed. Either natural disasters wipe out a big portion of his wealth, or bad players come along and steal the rest of his wealth, and between one side or the other, he loses all of it. On top of that, while he's grieving that, his children are all together and a tragic accident takes place and all his kids die. And Job literally loses everything. And he's trying to be the right person. He's, he's grieving, but he's trying to say, well, God knows and God gave, God took away. And he's trying to walk through that pain with a right spirit and a right heart. But shortly thereafter, his health gives way. Maybe under the stress of all that he lost and trying to cope with that. And obviously it's a spiritual thing. We know that from the story. But Job's health just falls apart. And he's in extreme pain. It's a painful health crisis that he's going through. He's suffering physically. And he's lost everything he's had and he's grieving and he's physically suffering. His wife, who is also grieving because she's lost everything, looks at him as exasperated and says, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job has some friends show up who spend a, the first week comforting him. Then after a week, they're like, you know, Job, you probably should realize that God's judging you. You did something wrong to deserve what's happening to you. Thanks a lot, my friends. And it's an amazing story. And again, we could all be like, oh, that's me. I'm totally, me and Job, you know. But, but, but James is trying to say, look, there are people who've suffered worse than any of us have. Like Job, just for a minute there, can we realize that we always honor those who can do the right thing even though it's hard? And, he, and James says, look, you can see how the Lord was kind to him at the end. For the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. See, the Lord was kind to Job in the end. The end of Job's story, things turned around. His health improved. He got better. I don't know if it, through, through one means or the other, through whether God blessed him through more enterprise or whatever. He, he ended up in, in his life with more wealth than he had ever owned before. He, even though you can't replace your kids, he ended up with a new family, had uh, 10 more children, and life went on. It's an interesting story. And while he had his hardships that he could never get past in life, his critics were shut up. His life was turned right upside up again. And not only was his life blessed in his life before it was over, but here we are thousands of years later still letting Job's story minister to us today. He's still changing lives today. And at the end, God was kind to him, even though he suffered. Because the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. And James is trying to say, don't lose faith, don't lose hope, don't lose heart. If you're in that end of things, hang in there. You know why? Because guess what our big statement is today? God is coming and he will make it right. Can you say it with me again? Ready? God is coming, and he will make it right. So good. And what we saw in these verses is a several, that applies in several ways. To the, to the greedy, self-serving crowd who takes advantage of other people, God is coming, he'll make it right. To the person who's struggling under the bad deal of life and struggling and they, just, they can't and they're just not making it and it's, life's not fair, God is coming. He'll make it right. 
For those who get twisted and toxic because of that and become a, a, a person who takes vengeful spirits and says things they shouldn't say and does things they shouldn't do, God is coming. He'll make it right. And for those who are looking for others for inspiration and example, we can see in the lives of other people who we've admired that God is coming and he will make it right. That's the, that's the lesson. I, I thought of this when I was preparing the message. Um, in my life growing up, my mom was able to stay home and take care of us kids. My poor mom, she had like five kids. Three of us were born within, I was still two in my third, I was the oldest of three, of five. My, me and my two sisters were born, I was still two, almost three when the third one was born. And I wasn't potty trained yet because I'm a slow learner. So my mom was washing out cloth diapers in the tub. Have you ever washed out cloth diapers? Some of you are nodding your heads as you know. For three of us. And God bless her. And she stayed home. She was able to stay home while we grew up for most of our lives until we were teenagers. And um, be there. But um, my dad was gone. And I remember there was, there was always the ultimate threat when we were misbehaving. You know what my mom would say? You wait till your dad gets home. Oh, that was like the ultimate threat. Because poor moms, can I, just, can I commiserate for moms here? Moms are always there like, stop that, don't do that. Because like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And then dad walks, he's like, hey, who? You know, not always, I'm just being stereotypical, but it just seems like that's not fair. Anyhow, so my mom was like, wait till your dad gets home. You know, when I was in trouble, I had something wrong, and my mom says, when your dad gets home, you're gonna, he's going to deal with you. I would like spend some serious time in, with me and Jesus, praying for my dad to get overtime for the next five years. And, uh, or that the rapture would take place, or that, and I mean, I'd be the best son in the world for the rest of the day. And before I knew it, the driveway, I could hear the car pulling the driveway. Oh, no, he's home, you know. Mom, you lovely woman who I love so much, you know. Have mercy upon my pitiful soul, you know. But, but yeah, he was coming. But you know that whenever I was in trouble, when something bad happened to me, when I needed help, I couldn't wait when Dad would get home. Because he, he could make it right. That wasn't some of your home dynamic, I know. But James is kind of nodding back to the idea that he's like, God is coming, and he'll make it right. And that could either be comforting to you or correcting to you, but God is coming, and he'll make it right. So in these verses, we see three applications, and I'm done, we're done. The first one is this. He says, don't take advantage of people. Listen, don't take advantage of people. Don't take advantage of people. And he says, because, listen, God is coming, and he will make it right. We also saw in these verses him saying, hey, if you're getting the bad end of the deal sometimes in life, hey, don't take matters into your own hands. Be careful that you don't get turned. Because God is coming. He'll make that right. He'll make it right. But if you're suffering, if you're trying to do the right thing, and just, you're just trying to do the right thing, and try to do it the right way, not that you say you are, but you're not, or you say you are, but it's not true, but it's true to you. You're just, just doing right, and you just can't, you can't control it. You can't fix it. Nothing you can do. You just got to live with what's, what it is. Take comfort and hope. Don't lose faith. Don't lose hope. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Because God is coming. He'll make it right. And that's both corrective and comforting. And in my life, it's been both corrective and comforting. But I hope that when you leave here today, 
and you think of James chapter 5, verses 1 through 11 in the future, you'll remember this statement. This will be the statement that you take with you that reminds you of what James is communicating to everybody, no matter what their situation is. It's a statement that fits every situation on one form or another, that God is coming and he will make it right.